Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, coming to you from our studio in Johannesburg. I'm Michael Apple. It's Monday, the 31st of January, and with me are my colleagues, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swat. They've got the latest in your news headlines and a look at what's going on in the markets. On today's program, our partner, the Financial Times, takes a look at inflation expectations, chatting to the head of one of the world's biggest sovereign wealth funds worth a staggering $1.3 trillion. Then the FT has more on the Russia-Ukraine story. Will they or won't they invade what do Ukrainians think is going to happen? Then we'll hear from Linda van Tilburg, our London correspondent, who has a fantastically South African story and what could be more South African than Biltong. Then you'll be hearing my voice as I chat to the president of the SA Informal Traders Association and about rumblings of xenophobia. And then a second interview, Executive Director of Corruption Watch, uh, Karam Singh. We talk Transparency International's latest corruption perception index. Nadia Swat, what do you think? Take a guess. In 2012, South Africa was ranked 69th most corrupt country in the world. A decade later, do you think we've gone up, down, or stayed the same? Okay, well, firstly, I'm surprised that like we were that, you know, low on the, on the ranking. <laughs> How corrupt can like, you know, 68 other countries be? Firstly. <laughs> and secondly, um, if I wasn't privy to like the statistical information, uh, then I would be completely sure that we'd gotten worse. The news headlines, please. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Action SA leader Herman Mashaba and distinguished education professor Jonathan Janssen had social media in a mess on Sunday with a fiery exchange about foreigners allegedly being employed by the education department. It started when Mashaba took to Twitter to claim foreigner nationals were being employed in senior positions in the department. It has been brought to my attention about the employment of foreign nationals in senior positions in the Department of Basic Education. I will take up this matter with the minister and the SA Democratic Teachers Union if they have knowledge of this when South Africans are unemployed, he said. Janssen responded, calling Mashaba a disgraceful leader on a campaign of xenophobia and an embarrassment to the country and the continent. Mashaba hit back, suggesting Janssen was promoting lawlessness. Jacob Zuma is in a final push to stay corruption charges against him by appealing an October 2021 ruling that dismissed his attempts at getting the lead prosecutor of his corruption case removed. Zuma has pulled out every legal argument his team can muster to delay the trial, including special pleas to have all charges dropped and to get the prosecution team kicked off the case. The former president has even gone as far as to lay criminal charges against the lead prosecutor to aid his case. Zuma faces several charges of corruption and racketeering related to an early 2000s arms deal. And a new report from President Saul Ramaphosa's advisory council has been leaked, showing strong support for a basic income grant in the country. This follows a report last week with the opposite message. 
The earlier report warned that a basic income grant could jeopardize South Africa's financials and lead to instability. The latest report presents a more favorable view, saying that the depth of poverty in the country is so deep that it is unlikely that it would be able to grow its way out of it. So a grant would go a long way in tackling this problem. The leaked report said it would also boost economic activity by enabling more participation. Now to my colleague Justin for the market report. The JSEAL share index is firmer this Monday at 74,100. And the price action in the Green Iron Gate, previously invested property fund, they're subject of a buyout offer. They're up by more than 10% today. MTN, great results out of Nigeria. They're well up near the 200 mark. The first time they've seen those levels in nearly six or seven years. NASPERS and Process are higher as Tencent closed stronger in Hong Kong this morning. And in the red, not a whole lot to speak about. In the top 40, coal mine Xara is the worst affected, down over 4% on the day. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 55 cents to the dollar. 20 rand 87 cents to the pound and 17 rand 35 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,791 an ounce. Kruger rand will put you back approximately 29,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $89.90 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 570,000 rand. In the financial news, four years and many sleepless nights late, Later, Steinhoff has taken a big step on the road to corporate rehabilitation after receiving an unqualified audit for its 2021 financial results released on Friday with its annual report. The debt-laden multinational furniture retailer is still running at a loss, but has managed to reduce the red ink to 850 million euros in 2021 from 2.3 billion euros a year earlier. A clean sheet which means the auditors regard the financial statements as transparent and accurate, comes days after an SA court approved a 24 billion PEPCO shares and cash settlement, ending two years of litigation against it by more than 8,500 claimants who argued they had been duped into buying worthless shares. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, January 31st, and this is your FT News Briefing. The head of the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund is betting that inflation will be sticking around, and earnings season has revealed some real winners and losers from the supply chain crisis. Plus, as tension mounts between Russia and the West, we'll take you to a city on the front line of the conflict. It's an uneasy part of Ukraine that's very much on edge. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Economists are divided over whether inflation is temporary or permanent, but the head of the world's largest sovereign wealth fund thinks inflation could become long-lasting. Nikolai Tangent runs Norway's $1.3 trillion oil fund. He told the Financial Times that permanent inflation means investors face years of low returns. Inflation in the biggest economies is now at its highest level in decades. Tangent said he thought inflation could be stronger than what's generally expected. He points to high demand, the number of people leaving the workforce, and lingering disruption in supply chains. Now, speaking of supply chain issues, they're playing a starring role in the current earnings season in the U.S. Many companies complained of shortages, delays, and spiking costs. Some companies have managed to navigate the disruption. 
Others, not so much. Our U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliffe-Johnson, starts with the winners. Well, it sounds slightly odd to say that Apple is one of the winners when it said that supply chain constraints costed about $6 billion in the last quarter. But actually, Wall Street had come to fear that it might be costing about $10 billion. So Apple has emerged as one of the winners of this earnings season. We had some pretty bullish statements from General Dynamics, uh, 3M, the mining company, Free- Freeport McMoran. But on the other side, you had companies like GE, which was hit by shortages of semiconductors, resin, parts, labor at some of its suppliers, Caterpillar, you had Mondelez, and even Tesla admitted that supply chain challenges, particularly related to semiconductors, are going to be with it for most of this year, if not into next year. Now, as you mentioned Tesla, and one of the things it's trying to do is move some of its production in-house to avoid the supply chain issues that we're talking about here. Who else is doing this? So I I spoke to a bunch of companies, a bunch of consultants, a bunch of specialists in the supply chain who said that pretty universally, they said, you know, COVID and all of the factory closures, you know, higher shipping costs, the shortages of key workers like truck drivers has really forced a rethink, a very long held belief in corporate America that what you need is just in time supply chains. There is this shift to a new mantra of just in case. Uh, Some people call it resilience, but those are the new slogans that are gaining ground in corporate America right now as a result of these really quite long lasting disruptions. Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson is the FT's U.S. business editor. U.S. and U.K. lawmakers are ready to hit Russia with sanctions if it invades Ukraine. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin is continuing to build up Russian forces at the border with Ukraine, according to U.S. defense officials. Now, some see this as high-stakes brinkmanship. But if Russia does invade, there are several routes it could take. And one is right through the city of Mariupol in southeast Ukraine. It's home to about half a million people. And the FT's Europe editor, Ben Hall, went there recently to speak to some of them. He joins me now to talk about what he found. Hi, Ben. Hello. So, Ben, this must have been quite a trip. Uh, Can you paint me a picture of what the city is like? You know, what did you see? Well, the, the picture that you would get is an unmissable picture is of these two hulking steelworks, which are some of the biggest steelworks in the the whole of Europe, actually. They employ tens of thousands of people. You can smell the coal uh, in the air, the coal burning in the air. This is not a wealthy city, but people were going around ordinary business. It did feel like life was carrying on as normal as it is in most of Ukraine. And the the people of Mariupol, I understand that they're familiar with war and conflict, right? People in Mariupol, like a lot of Ukrainians, have been living with war uh, since 2014. They saw Russia carve off the, the Crimean Peninsula and then instigate this separatist uprising in the Donbass region, of which uh, Mariupol is part, although it's not actually part of the occupied region. It's just about 20, 30 kilometers away from that. So they they have lived with this reality of fighting, and there was some pretty brutal uh, experiences for that city uh, in the fighting in, in 2014, 2015, including one very famous episode where the city was shelled uh, by a bomb, you know, barrage of rockets and, and 30 civilians were killed. So how are they feeling now, Ben? You know, who did you talk to when you were there? 
Well, we met uh, military officers, uh, we met local residents, we met uh, the mayor, nearly everybody that we spoke to just uh, struggles to imagine a really large scale invasion happening. They've been at war for some time, so they don't, they're not alarmed by the, the, you know, the idea of necessarily by by some kind of escalation. The second thing is is that many Ukrainians think that they are much better placed this time to withstand a Russian onslaught. Their army is stronger. And many Ukrainians are prepared to take up weapons and to fight. So there's a sort of element of defiance, uh, certainly amongst those Ukrainians who are very supportive of, of Kiev, amongst the residents who are Russian speaking, who are suspicious about Kiev's motives. They are more inclined to believe Russian propaganda, Russian public television, which they can get there and to believe those kind of narratives. So there's, there are definitely different views within that city. And is there tension between these two groups of people? There doesn't seem to be a lot of what you might call kind of community tension between these different groups. Um, we were really struck by the fact that I, I refer to a bombardment that killed 30, 30 people in 2015. And there was a young couple who said they thought that the Ukrainian authorities were responsible for this rocket attack. And literally, we turned around and there was another guy standing a few meters away, and he had completely the opposite view. They both lived in the in the same area. And yet they had very different interpretations of who was responsible for this and what lay behind that atrocity. And that, in a way, was was really quite sort of shocking to see. I do think the city has become more Ukrainian over recent years and less pro-Russian. So maybe the kind of pro-Ukrainian sentiment is more dominant there now than it was. So is there an economic or strategic value to the city, to, to either Ukraine or Russia? Is, is there a reason Russia would want to take Mariupol? Well, the two steel mills are a very important part of Ukrainian industry, and steel um, is one of Ukraine's big um, exports, a big foreign exchange earner. So clearly, if the Russians were to take the city and take control of the city, then they could take control of those steel works and deprive Ukraine of that earnings. Um, they could t- take control of the port, so they could stop the steel getting out. They, the port is also used for um, exporting commodities, particularly grain. So it's an outlet to the rest of the world. And one of the possible scenarios, one of the possible intentions of Vladimir Putin is to annex the south of the country and essentially to hobble Ukraine commercially by depriving it of access to the sea. So, Ben, after visiting Mariupol, is there a sort of takeaway you have? Do you feel like you have more of an insight into the larger geopolitical moment that we're in right now? Well, only that I think Ukrainians are still very unsure about uh, what's going to happen. They absolutely buy the argument of Vladimir Putin is perfectly capable of, in fact, intent on wanting to destabilize their country and will try to do it in all sorts of different ways, provocations, false flag operations, cyber attacks. But the idea of a full-blown invasion really baffles Ukrainians. They don't really understand why he would need to do that, why he would take such a risk, because so many Ukrainians would be prepared to resist. Um, the Ukrainian army is stronger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a bit of a kind of phony war sort of atmosphere uh, in Ukraine generally at the moment. Um, 
and the government itself in Ukraine is playing down uh, the threat of a very big offensive because they feel that it's precisely that prospect or that, you know, if people start to take that on board, then that will sow panic in the population, it will disrupt the economy. And those are very much the things that, that Putin wants. Ben Hall is the FT's Europe editor. Thanks, Ben. You're very welcome. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Lena from for Biz News. There is an American company called Strive that is selling Boltong in the United States, and it is determined to grab the market share of jerky, the American equivalent. Strive is marketing Boltong as a healthier meat snack, and they have raised nearly 1 billion rand for expansion. The chief manufacturing officer of Strive is South African-born entrepreneur Warren Parler. Paolo started making Boltong for his company Brightime in his garage, joined forces with Strive's founders, who have also bought another Boltong company called Boltong USA. Well, joining me now is Warren Paolo from Oklahoma. Warren, how do you plan to take control of the market in the USA? So, Linda, it's uh, something that both um, Joe Oblas, one of the founders of Strive, and myself agreed on in our first meeting. We would like every American to try Biltong because we both know as soon as they do, jerky's done. It's just about as simple as that. So like you, 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 for, uh, you know, your intro, thank you for that. Basically started the company in 2005, my little bright time company in my garage, just because I missed Biltong. I couldn't find it yet. And the, what, the, what we could get was jerky. It was, was not comparable. And then, you know, spent a lot of money and a lot of time figuring out how to navigate the U.S. system, the snack market, the RTE, the CPG side, the, the food safety is the piece that really consumed me. And uh, after I got my USDA approval and grant, I still couldn't get traction in CPG. It just takes a lot of money and a lot of contacts and a lot of experience. And 2017, I met Joe Oblast who's one of my partners and um, founder of Strive, as well as the other two that helped found the company was Ted Casey and Gabe Karimi. And yeah, our, our um, goals were in alignment. We wanted the same thing. They loved it and they loved the nutritionals. They thought it was a revolution and they had the experience in CPG and manufacturing to take it to the next level. I saw that we had, they'd raised money to do so. And so I moved my family my wife and I, five kids from New Jersey, where we were, where I had a facility, a, you know, a 10,000-foot-square facility, to Texas. And when we got here, it took a while, you know, to find our feet. We ended up actually purchasing a facility in just over the border in Oklahoma, 50,000-square-foot built-on factory. And it wasn't when we – it was actually a peanut factory when we bought it. And uh, we converted and rebuilt from the ground up, you know, everything we needed to, to make this happen and our capacity, having the forethought to know and, you know, with the experience of my partners, knowing how much they could sell. Right now, we've been essentially doubling every year since, we, since I got here. And the sales side, you know, that is thanks to my partners. And um, that 
capacity was already built baked into the cake here. So that confidence up front to to build a facility that can, you know, take us from 12 million to 28 million to 38 million to 50 million to our revenue is growing at the moment and it grows every day. But I think we have 36,000 doors that sell our built-on products. Sure. But when you compare that to South Africa and what kind of market, you've got a massive market. So are you trying to sell it as a health product? So built-on, believe it or not, is actually a lot healthier than jerky for a myriad of reasons. And other than just tasting better, um, it's... It doesn't have the MSG, the nitrates, the sugar that is common sugar. to most jerky. Tons of sugar. The sugar is a, a big factor, and especially at the moment, people have realized sugar is not good for you. You know, it hits all the right hallmarks. It's a higher quality protein. As we all know, it's not cooked to the degree that um, jerky is. Jerky is kind of cooked to death, for want of a better word. So, you know, the meat and the quality of the protein is just better. The structure is better. So your body absorbs. It's a very bioavailable form of protein. And um, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, but Biltong yeah, is just better. Biltong. Yeah, we just definitely a gap in the market. As you know, Biltong has taken Australia by storm. It's taken the UK by storm. It's taken Europe by storm. It's the snack of choice in all those other parts of the world. It just needed the nut crackja in the U.S., and that was the USDA piece. That, that, and then, of course, someone to do it, which is me and my partners here. We've, you know, we put together a team and we've pulled it off. So that's your target market. So people looking for something slightly healthier. Yeah, our target market is families in motion. There's a large market segment at the moment of people who want to eat better. They want to have better snacking for their kids. They want to grab and go. It's a massive segment and it's under served at the moment with healthy snacks. And so rather than compete directly with, you know, the, the truckers and the, the Sasquatch guys who currently jerky markets to the, the manly men who like hunting and we're not doing that. We're using our healthier nutritional panel to um, expand into other markets, large markets. Just look at the financials. You are NASDAQ listed, but you also raised um, a funding round. There was a funding round. Just explain that to us. We've been through a number of raises. This one was our first public raise. So, as you know, I guess that's partially why the interview occurred. You were aware of the fact Mm. it gets announced to the market. We're public now under the ticker yeah. SNAX, so snacks. So we, we got the best Sorry. possible ticker ever. I could, we couldn't believe it was available. When it came available, <laughs> we were like, that's the one. Um, but there are certain capital requirements that we have based on the growth. And I guess that's been the story from the beginning with us. But this is public information. So we have achieved certain market penetration with people like Costco, and 7-Eleven. So those deals are coming to fruition now. I dare say they probably would have happened sooner if, if the whole COVID issue and the, re- the retailers weren't resetting uh, that year. It would have happened sooner. But mm-hmm. now that that seems to be behind us, we're getting a lot of business this year. And so for that reason, we need to expand. And for that, you need capital. The cash injection is, what, $35 million? That's a lot of rands. 
Yes, there is a lot of runs. But to put that in perspective, we have a Costco deal just I'm currently working on now, the, the Costco piece, which would need working capital right there of $10 million. So I know it sounds like a lot of money, but we've got to buy them and we've got to put it through the system and we've got to send it to Costco and all of that cash flow has to be there, you know, or we'll end up getting paid at the end, you know, but for right now, yeah, we, we need some runway. I mean, we we've kept our belts tight. We've been frugal, but we have definitely at the right times had the ability to, to raise money when we need it. That's a key thing to be able to move quickly and uh, sort of capitalize on what we know is a, disruptor a category disruptor if we sit back and you know take 10 years to do this or 20 years to do this it would end up with jack links or somebody you know taking the cake from us it's quite a nice thought for i think south africans to think that a product that's so well known in south africa and when the name is south african that you know is making inroads overseas so how did somebody from springs end up selling bolton in america how do you know I'm from Springs? <laughs> you said so earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love saying I'm from Springs. In fact, at the uh, Springbok Club in New York, the first thing you had to do was say where you were from, and you weren't yeah. allowed to say Joburg or Cape Town or Durban. I want to know exactly where you're from, please. <laughs> so I would say to folks, tell me, are you from Porfado? Are you from Brackpan? I want to know exactly where you're from. <laughs> so that, you know, anyway, people always hide behind, I'm from Joburg or I'm from Cape Town. We want to know, know where you're from. I'm from Springs, proudly from Springs. Yep. I moved over with another company, Arthur Anderson, to New York, worked on Wall Street at Merrill Lynch oh, for a bit. Oh. But I am an entrepreneur. It's kind of a dirty word these days or something. But uh, I had a business mm-hmm. at Varsity that paid for my, my student loans. And it, I got the bug bit me then. And I just saw this gap. But for whatever reason, Biltong hadn't been here. The nut hadn't been cracked. And I, I went at it until I fixed that. <laughs> And it's been a success that took 15 years to come to fruition. But, you know, I kind of moved here for opportunity. I moved to New York for opportunity. And then at the same time, I moved back. Now I'm in Texas for opportunity. There's just way more opportunity to, to be here with the, this, this group of partners and make this product that we all love and make, you know, the name of South Africa and the snack. It's a, It's just it's, it feels really good to have our heritage succeeding in the American market. It's wonderful. Do you use the fact that it's South African? Do you use that in your marketing? Interestingly, I learned early on that that's not always the best way to approach it. Just because the word okay. Boltong is difficult to sell, you've got to educate them, uh, the Americans yeah. on that, educate the public. Same with Drovors. Even the name of the company, Brightime, was horrendous uh, two a's and an i with three vowels is that people would be they'd fall over before they even could say it so you learn pretty quickly but you can see strive we have biltong snacks we still sell it as biltong but we've also figured out that the better way to do it is to take the category of air dried beef which is what the usda designated that as and you can expand into various sort of the Hispanic markets, the Spanish, the um, there's a there's a bunch of other places where they do air dried beef. We have the USDA approval to do it, so we're expanding the category. Is the short answer? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fine. And I leave, believe you have drovers, but you call it Bolton slabs. 
No, the slabs are the sticks that we, we oh, call sticks in South Africa. We call them slabs here. Okay. And then the world of the drovos, we call sticks. Yeah, Stick. <laughs> yeah, I'm an anomaly around you because it's just slabs don't come naturally to me, but it's a slab of meat and a stick of meat. So, yeah, I've actually changed my own, termin <laughs> my own terminology. But uh, that's how they... It, it works better in this market. But it still tastes the same? still tastes the same. Or did you tweak the recipe? So the recipe is my wife's family. Mm -hmm. My father-in-law taught me how they make it. They're Zimbabwean, originally South oh. African, but wow. there's, a, there's a heavy Zimbabwean influence and the way it's made there is just slightly different to how all the butchers in South Africa make it. And I, so I oh. took that and kind of expanded, 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 commercialized it eventually. And that's what this has become. So, you know, I, I'm eternally grateful to my wife for helping me with Brightime through the, through when we were in the garage and growing to that other facility. She took over the food safety pieces. We've, while the kids have all worked in the business, we have pictures of them when they three and five years old with hair nets on and doing, you know, sorting packets and, it was a, a, a very much a family business until until we came down here to Texas when it became commercial. And uh, we have 80 people right now, and that's expanding as our second shift expands. Um, the company total, I think there's 130-odd employees right now. Yeah, it's a very, very different ball game to, to where I started. Well, good, good luck with that. And, you know, when we – I don't know about you, whenever I see a Roy Boss, when I see – you know, South African products doing really well. People in the UK often think Nando's is Portuguese. No, it's not. It's South African. And it's, it's, yes. it's lovely lovely to know that there's another product that has South African roots and, you know, is a product that we all love and care for. So, you know, good luck on your journey. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you. And, yeah, I just want to say thanks, like I say, to everyone who's helped me along the way. Welcome. My name is Michael Apple. I'm joined in conversation with the president of the South African Informal Traders Association, uh, Rashida Muller. Thank you so much for your time. I'd like to start by asking you exactly how many people you represent. Your statement you sent out uh, earlier this week said 2 million. I just want to make sure I read that correctly. The statistics on informal trade is round about 4.9 million. But we obviously do not have the data of every single trader on our, you know, within the, the borders of South Africa. But we do have a footprint uh, across the country in each province. We have a provincial structure and the mobilizing is going out to encourage and to to let every informal trader know that we are there to protect the interests of the informal sector. We traders like to call us the union. So um, I cannot give you a direct fixed number as this is an ongoing process. We have thousands upon thousands in each province, but we're taking it around the figures and the stats that is within South Africa. So even if you don't know that I'm protecting you as an informal trader, 
we protect the informal sector of South Africa per se, and we speak on behalf of them. In your statement, you said that, quote, Home Affairs, DERCO, that's uh, International Relations Department, and the SAPS are the institutions which have the authority and responsibility to intervene in issues like we saw last week uh, involving um, political parties going around to businesses. Um, and you're saying, well, political parties stay out of this. Yes, what we've seen, we as CITA want to distance ourselves from. You know, we express our disappointment at these actions. And we are saying, you know, that CITA is interested only in the economic development and empowerment of the informal traders and that we must not politicize the situation. And therefore, we call upon the government institutions to do what is correct, but to work with CITA in collaboration so that we can get into an indaba to look at what are the best solutions to see to the growth because of the high unemployment and also to see that the environment that with, within which we operate is one of peace and contentment. So that is why the call came out very strongly from CITA to let us not exacerbate the situation and calm the situation by having these, um, you know, these collaboration talks. And we must say that government has listened and we are busy engaging. I don't know when the actual Indaba will take place with CITA, but they have heard us and they appreciate the fact that we want to engage because we are the people on the ground. Many of our members are foreign traders and, you know, the history of foreign traders in our country goes back as far as 1994. Yeah, well, your argument, at least from your statement, is that the informal economy, the informal sector, you know, has to a degree helped absorb the millions pushed into unemployment by the state of the economy, lockdowns, COVID, etc. So you're saying it's a sector that must be nurtured and protected. Is that correct? Absolutely. We have seen that COVID-19 has led to so many retrenchments. People, uh, and if a person does not, you know, does not put bread on the table, the mother or the father, they're going to make some form of effort. And the first stepping stone into business is within the informal sector. When an unemployed person can go and get a, a box of uh, tomatoes and a pocket of potatoes, go onto the street corner and make packages and start selling and make a profit. So we say that the informal sector is the first step and the easiest step into job creation. And we believe that the informal economy is the one that is going to absorb as the, as the business sector cannot do it. So we, and even as we speak now, we are appealing to government to open up markets, to open up more and more spaces. We are inundated with requests of more and more um, trading spaces due to the high unemployment rate. The unemployment rate and the COVID-19 has seen the, the exponential growth of informal traders. Now, you've also mentioned that it's not your responsibility as CITA to determine the status legal or illegal 
of those joining the ranks of the informal trading sector. That's correct. We are saying we are not a policing agency. However, we do agree as CITA that there needs to be regulation. There needs to be regulation and we do want our traders to be documented if they are within the realms of the informal sector. We don't want to be a disorganized movement. We want a movement where we have a, a regulation, but regulation which is enabling and do no harm regulation. Regulation that will empower, enhance and develop the micro-business person. But we do not encourage undocumented traders to just go and set up, etc. But therefore, we are calling uh, government again to say, work in collaboration with us because in our partnership, we can ensure that this is monitored and controlled because we are on the ground. CITA's way of operating is, you know, at a national level, we have the nine provincial structures. In each province, you have the district structures. Each province is made up of districts and each district is made up of local organizations. We are say there's about 300 municipalities in, in the country of South Africa and we are saying that we need a site representative in each of those municipalities, an organization in each of those municipalities that can work hand in hand with the local government to ensure that we have good economic growth development for the informal traders because it cannot be one-sided and another thing is the municipalities do not have the capacity to manage and control the informal sector on the ground. So your plea to government is, you know, help us help you. And how has that plea been received? I see you recently hosted a webinar under the theme, The Resurgence of Xenophobia Against Foreign Traders. You did invite the Small Business Development Department to attend. Did they attend and what was the outcome of that webinar? Yes, indeed. We had uh, Stephen Umlau from the Department of Small Business Development on our straight talk. And uh, he, he was very glad to, to be there and to say that dialogue must continue. There has to be the partnership. So I think it was very successful, but it's now the implementation of what we talk about. We are so tired of talk shops when we go into meetings with government, local government, provincial or national government. We are saying let's get down into the nitty gritty and get the MOU signed or the MOAs, the Memorandum of Understanding or Agreements signed between CITA and government so that we know what our role is and what government's role is and together that partnership will be able to then monitor and evaluate, you know, as we grow and as we achieve better results. So, yes, indeed, it is high on our agenda that government and in particularly, Michael, you need to understand that the landlord of the informal trader generally, basically 80% is the municipality. We operate in every corner of public space and this public space needs to be managed correctly and therefore we are saying manage it with us as your partner. 
because then, you know, there'll be better understandings and we will be able to put on the table our concerns. Government can put their, their concerns on the table and together we can come to solutions that will benefit both. There was a 4 billion rand budget allocation by the government last year. I think it was to stimulate rural and township businesses. Have you seen that money filter through at all? Oh, <laughs> yes, I'd rather give you a little giggle there. Um, it's difficult. We, as CITA, have engaged CEDA and CEFA and have indicated that, you know, we need to track we need to track where this four billion is going to, and we need to ensure that our membership are they are getting access to this money. But it's slow, and I haven't seen much results. But I think we could have a follow up talk on this one, maybe to when we have an engagement and our report from Seed and Sefer to see who did you really give this money to. But um, it is too slow and. As in the past, as uh, we have seen that it is extremely difficult for the micro small business person to access government funding. The criteria, the requirements are too heavy. And that is another reason why we need that partnership so that we can look at how can we make it easier for business to access these government funding. So the answer very straightforwardly is no, it is not being seen and it, it's not very high figures. We're waiting on the report. The issue of employment quotas, you would have heard the Labour Minister Tulas Nlesi speaking about it a couple of days ago. He said he's in favour of it and Ned Lack is looking at the issue. Does CITA have a stance on this issue of uh, regulating local to foreign employment? Well, uh, we have a, a campaign which we call Do No Harm. And within this campaign, we make certain demands to government and in particular, again, local government. And yes, indeed, we do have representation in the form of Dr. Pat Horn from Streetnet at NEDLAC. And we are saying that the regulatory, you know, as I said earlier, regulations are important. We do believe there needs to be quotas because, um, you know, it's because of that high figures and numbers that's out there that's causing the conflict and the confrontation. Yes, of course, but it needs to unpack and, and really to a point that we can agree with those regulations that is being proposed. As for how a lot of your members must be feeling, um, you've said a lot of your members are foreign nationals uh, and will keep the legal or illegal status out of it for now. But what's the feeling on the ground? Is there a sense of fear about what's going on? Yes, there is. You know, there is a fear. And that is because, number one, there's a lack of um, space. A lack of space, and that's why we're calling for new markets to be opened and to create more spaces for informal trade. Because you go into an area and you're going to find, for example, that you know the there are more foreign traders than local traders, for example, in a CBD, and that causes frustration. So uh, we we do want and CITA you know, as an organization that represents informal traders, irrespective of whether you are foreign or local, need to ensure that there's calm 
and that there is good relations, but also taking into consideration the high unemployment rate and the the um, the duty and the responsibility of site as well as government is to ensure that local economic empowerment takes preference. So, but we are allaying the fears by you know um, speaking the voice of you know friendliness partnership we're all in the boat together we all want the same thing so let's work together to have that harmony and create more markets so that everybody who is in need of a space to trade will be accommodated and we are looking at at the the management of the open public spaces with government rashida muller thank you for your time it's a pleasure thank you michael Hi, welcome. My name is Michael. I'm joined by Karam Singh, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. He uh, is joining me to chat about Transparency International's latest Corruption Perception Index, the CPI. Just to be clear, this is something that looks at public sector corruption on a scale of naught to 100, where naught is squeaky clean and 100 is rotten to the core. Mr. Singh, thanks for your time. A decade ago, we were sitting at 69th in the world on this list, how are things looking for 2021? Uh, well, you know, there hasn't really been that much movement. I mean, there's there's two rankings. There's the, the rankings in terms of the countries uh, that you've referred to, and then the ranking on the, the scale. And I think our score is about 44. And what we've seen over uh, a 10-year period is not a lot of movement in, in, in terms of the perceptions either uh, much worse or much better. So the picture that's being painted is one of, of sort of stagnation when it comes to our progress in the fight against corruption. Well, one thing that uh, all presidents have in common is they, they love to speak about their fight against corruption. I was looking through some old State of the Nation addresses by Mr. Zuma, who just coincidentally happens to be in court today. But he said in 2017, quote, the fight against corruption continues. Then in 2018, uh, you have President Ramaphosa saying, quote, this is the year in which we are going to turn the tide of uh, of corruption in our public institutions. <sighs> Sigh. Are we a country of empty platitudes and sloganeering, Mr. Singh? Well, I mean, I think there's an element of that, unfortunately, which is part of our part of our body politic. And, and you make a good point. I mean, we we have um, a, a state capture commission that's issuing reports now, and we have a, a record of 10 years of state capture, which happened under the hand of Jacob Zuma. But we know that throughout that period, Jacob Zuma would make a, a, a very strong statements about the commitment in the fight against corruption. I note, he, you know, he signed very quite quite a large number of SIU proclamations to to initiate investigations into corruption. So I think it's something that we flagged, you know, that there is this gap. Um, the the so-called new administration has been in for, you know, since 2017 now. And while we have seen some progress uh, reestablishing institutions of our democracy, particularly I'm thinking about SARS, to a certain extent the Hawks, to a certain extent the National Prosecuting Authority, um, you know, despite getting some of those institutions onto a better wicket with 
uh, new and invigorated leadership, we've seen a host of new corruption scandals in this period, uh, unrelated to uh, the so-called era of state capture, such as the the PPE uh, uh, procurement uh, um, corruption that we've seen over the last two years. So it's not clear that we're in a new dawn. It's not clear that we've turned a corner. And it's certainly not clear that we're matching um, our actions and our progress with the kind of rhetoric that we hear. Yeah, well, you, you beat me to my next question. And that was you have no greater illustration of how rotten the entire procurement system is in the public sector than the the finding by the SIU that over 60% of, of government's procurement spend on PPE was found to be irregular. Um, you know, uh, the looters looted. Uh, was it naive of us to think um, that there would be a sense of conscience, a, a sense of morality that would prevail at a time when a pandemic was wreaking havoc on the country and the world? I think it was naive, you know. I mean, I think our experience, unfortunately, particularly, you know, at least over the, the last 20 years, is that when whenever a significant amount of money is being mobilized by the state to address an issue, that there's more than leakage, that there's actually a kind of systemic uh, uh, attempt to to redivert that money into into different you know private uh, hands we've seen this going back to the arms deal which was in the first administration of the first uh, uh, democratic government in south africa going back to the 1990s and you know we, we can now chart a period of time where we just we've known what's required we we know how corruption functions if you go back to siu reports going back over 10 years they can tell you that pr- procurement was a huge area of vulnerability. So we've known the issues for a long time. We haven't put the right measures in place. We haven't taken the right actions. We haven't built up the right capacity within the state to really address the problem uh, as we understand it. So hopefully there's some new impetus with the the findings of the the Zondo Commission, but um, there's still so much work that needs to be done before we can even begin to think that we are... Uh, uh, addressing or winning the fight against corruption. I read about the the National Anti-Corruption Strategy, NACS, adopted in November 2020. Um, Is it being used as a paperweight somewhere? Is it sort of yet another document strategy, a policy that we've come up with that actually has no tangible impact at all? That remains to be seen, Michael. Um, You know, there was a lot of a lot of time, a lot of effort uh, put into the development of the strategy. It was approved by cabinet. It gives us a little bit of a roadmap in terms of the priorities that need to be done. But everything just seems to move so slowly, you know, um, when it comes to making the big decisions, when it comes to a, a real law reform or real institutional reform, it seems that the can forever gets kicked down the road. And, and we have a, a two-year advisory committee before we then get an independent anti-corruption agency. You know, we just can't af- afford uh, uh, to wait, you know, because we, we've got the next PPE scandal just around the corner. So I fear that politics, uh, particularly factional politics within the governing party, uh, casts a big shadow over these commitments. And I think that's why we see uh, such big talk and, and such little follow-through. What's happening in South Africa doesn't seem to be unique if you look at what uh, 
the the CPI, um, this corruption perception index found in that almost 90%, I think it was something like 87% of countries uh, in the world haven't made any progress uh, in the CPI over the last decade. What what do you think is behind this? You know, they're, def- they're, they're definitely competing issues, I think, that inform that. I think one of the big things that's leading to that has been the slide globally around democracy and democratic standards, you know, which, which isn't necessarily specifically our problem in South Africa, but we do see in many jurisdictions around the world, in the developing world, in, in the former, you know, Eastern Europe, uh, a kind of slide towards an authoritarianism. And I think with that, with a, a, a decline in democratic standards, there are greater vulnerabilities for corruption because those are systems which are not particularly interested in principles around transparency and accountability. So, you know, where we see politicians kind of amassing personal power, I think we, we can we can we know that along with that comes comes some of the corruption challenges. So I think that's a big big uh, uh, phenomenon of the recent period. And it's something which we need to be mindful of in South Africa because we can't rest on our laurels and think that we have a, a democratic state and a democratic constitution which is stable and which also isn't uh, doesn't come under pressure and come under threat from different forces, whether that be uh, uh, threats on independent media or the type of attacks that we see on the judiciary. You know, two of the pillars, I'd say, of our current uh, uh, constitutional dispensation. Now, you as Corruption Watch have, have mentioned the sterling work done by the State Capture Inquiry in sh- shining a, a spotlight on corruption within the public sector, uh, private sector, yes, but but uh, public sector in particular. Um, has it been followed up by prosecutions? I, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But, you know, has the NPA been up to task here? Not yet. Not yet, Michael. You know, and, and last week... Um, in fact, the National Director of Public Prosecutions had a briefing session with uh, a different civil society organizations. And, you know, there was a, a, a very strong tone coming in that from the MPA of uh, mea culpas, of apologies, of kind of trying to sensitize us in civil society around the real challenges that they face. Uh, I remember when Hermione Cronier came in as head of the independent directorate, she and um, the national director spoke about the challenges of recapacitating the institution, of of kind of fixing the plane while you still needed to fly it. So, I think we are we are we are sitting with those kinds of challenges, and um, the MPA has its work cut out for it. But we've received all the assurances that these are cases which will be prioritized. And and um, again, um, yeah. The, the, the MPA really has its work cut out for it, uh, and we would expect to see some progress in this space over this immediate period coming up. It's amazing the sort of deja vu one felt reading one of the recommendations of the State Capture Inquiry Part 1, a return to a truly independent anti-corruption agency mm, mimicking the scorpions. Have we gone full circle it got disbanded. We realized, oh, we actually needed it. And there are hopefully plans to put it back in place. Have we just gone full circle? Absolutely. You know, and, and these kinds of recommendations have been on the table. You mentioned the NACs. The NACs also talks about a process 
that would lead to the establishment of an independent anti-corruption agency. It's found expression in resolutions of the NEC, of the ANC. But even if you go back to the Glenister II decision from 2011, you know, the, the, the decision of, uh, of Deputy Chief Justice then at the time, Mosineki, you know, spoke very clearly about the constitutional requirements and the requirements in terms of South Africa's obligations under the UN Convention Against Corruption for the establishment of an independent anti-corruption agency. You know, whether that agency ends up looking like something like the Scorpions, it certainly would have aspects of how the Scorpions approach their work, which is a prosecution-led based investigation. Because we know that whenever there's a handoff in the criminal justice system from one entity, say one entity that's investigating, to a completely separate entity that's going to be prosecuting, that's where we face challenges, that's where we face delays. So, um, yeah, that, that, that investigation, prosecution-led investigations model uh, has been tried and tested around the world, and we would expect to see that as part of this new uh, institutional realignment. Uh, you know, again, are, are we being naive? Is it too optimistic to expect this in this immediate period? Well, it shouldn't be, because it's part of the national anti-corruption strategy, and we know that it's the right thing to do. One of the things that came out very strongly from the first report was the extent to which whistleblowers are incredibly important uh, in South Africa's fight against corruption. Now, whether they are appreciated by the government is and defended and protected by the government is a separate story. But just how important they are, it can't be can't be understated or can't be overstated. Um, the protection of whistleblowers in South Africa is the South African government not? It's talking the talk. It's not really walking the walk. Uh, you've seen attacks on. Well, Ethel Williams is out of the country. The man fears for his life. Johan von Lochrenberg, Temba Maseko, their homes are broken into. They don't believe it to be any coincidence. Babita Diokarin is murdered in her driveway. Uh, it's not a good time to be a whistleblower in South Africa. No, it's, it's dangerous. Um, it comes with lots of perils, perils of one's personal safety, one's uh, employability, uh, the financial challenges that come with uh, getting lawyered up if you end up, end up in a in a court case or you end up losing your job because you've blown the whistle again you know these are these are things that we've known about for a long time uh the protected disclosures act uh was progressive when it came into effect there were amendments to it to broaden the definition but we we need a much stronger uh system that promotes whistleblower protection and you know we're even beginning now to see the types of recommendations around thinking about how we can incentivize whistleblowing, that if we have a regime where we're able to uh, have civil recoveries as a result of corruption investigations that are the direct result of information that's provided by whistleblowers, that there should be some kind of mechanism within our law to provide some type of compensation to whistleblowers in, 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 in those circumstances. Um, you know, these are, are very coherent recommendations. The other recommendation around having an institutional home. No, if I'm a whistleblower, knowing that there is a place that I can go within the state where I can receive, where I can be safe, where my complaints can be received, where there can be an assessment of my safety and where required I can receive those additional protections. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's got to be on the table in terms of our broad approach to uh, the types of anti-corruption reforms we want to see going forward. Karam Singh, Executive Director at Corruption Watch. Thanks so much for your time. 
Well, thank you for joining the Biz News team this Power Hour. We'll be back again on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.